This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Hello, Mr. Hamilton. Why are you always so happy? Like, it's like a crack of 11 in the morning. Like, what's going on? You're always so happy. Yeah, well, hey, I am happy because I am sitting here in Whitehorse, Yukon Territory, and I am attending Thinhorn Summit 3, hosted by the Wild Sheep Foundation. Stoked, man. It's awesome. Yeah, can't say I'm not a bit jealous. Uh, So for those that don't know, what is the Thinhorn Summit and why are you there? Well, this is my first actual summit attending. Actually, I attended uh, a little portion of it in Alaska in 17, I think, was the last one. And uh, basically what it is, is it's getting the four jurisdictions with Thinhorn Sheep uh, in their area together to talk about the status of Thinhorn Sheep, um, how things are going, uh, get some ideas on population estimates, um, challenges, and then a roadmap forward on how to make things better. So uh, led by the Wild Sheep Foundation, Kevin Hurley, Vice President of Conservation, is the, the lead on it. This is kind of his baby. And Kevin is getting, you know, I think there's 110, he said, of us that get together to talk wild sheep and thin horn sheep and um, just, uh, you know, touch base. It, it's intended to be done on a three-year basis every three years. With COVID, it's been pushed two years, so it's been five years since the last one. So great opportunity to get together and, you know, lots of biologists and veterinarians and science type people here to sort of give us a really good um, understanding. Um, Like there's a bunch of government representatives here, which is great. Bill Jax is here, uh, Mm -hmm. Kylie Thacker. Uh, So it's going to be fantastic to really get a a good grasp on where we are with wild sheep and and thinhorn sheep in particular. Yeah, what I like is it's, for for somebody on the outside like me, it's it's a, a veritable who's who in the wild sheep world, you've got your stakeholders, you got your guide outfitters, you've got your first nations, you got your biologists, you got your government officials. So it's, it's, it's like a meeting of the minds and uh, everybody's going to have a lot of great things to say and, and thoughts and suggestions on what we need to do for wild sheep. And Kevin in this episode gets into it. Yeah. Kevin is, uh, you know, he's so tied to wild sheep. He is so knowledgeable. I don't know anyone that knows more holistically about, Thinhorn sheep than Kevin. Um, obviously, there's a lot of people that know a lot about specific things, but Kevin is the bond that brings all these people together. So, he does a fantastic job, um, gives us some great insight mm-hmm. on this podcast, and uh, really enjoyed the chat with uh, Kevin Hurley, VP of uh, Conservation for the Wild Sheep Foundation. And what a dedicated individual. Just you could see and hear it's his life passion. And he he wants to continue to do this for another 20 years he said mm-hmm. and he'll do it even longer if he's if, if possible and it's you, you see being part of it that that draw of the wild sheep that you, you don't really feel until you kind of dip your toes in and we'll tie up the boots and climb up a mountain right and then you you don't really know why you do it you just do it and he's one that exemplifies that yeah yeah, absolutely. Can't agree more. Uh, just a, a little on the housekeeping side, a couple things to touch base on. We just today uh, announced our Women Shaping Conservation event. That's June 17th in Langley, BC. So tickets are now on sale on our website for this. And um, it's uh, an event for for the woman around conservation. So um, not saying 
gents, you can't come, but this is intended for the ladies. Uh, we're really trying to, you know, promote this for women to get more involved in the conservation, maybe hunting, maybe not. Uh, my wife is, uh, you know, very interested in wild sheep conservation, no interest in hunting them. She'll never pick up a rifle or a bow, but she wants to see them on the landscape. She's passionate about it and loves to support it. So, um, yeah, we're really excited about this event, um, on June 17th, it's in Langley, um, over to our website, get, get some tickets. Um, we only have a limited number of seats on that as well. Very affordable night. I think tickets are 70 bucks, includes dinner and a couple glasses of wine. And, uh, the cool thing is, is Dr. Helen Swansha is going to be there and, uh, Renee Thornton, she's the, the, mm -hmm. um, lead for the women hunt initiative for the wild sheep foundation. Um, and we, we're going to show that film transmission, our new, uh, film around Movi disease and wild sheep, which Kevin references in the podcast. And you guys have heard the podcast with Jesse Bone about it. So you'll be able to see the film. Renee's going to share uh, her women hunt film. And then we've got some, you know, as always, right? Tons of cool giveaways, prizes. We're doing some raffles. Um, we're doing some timed auctions items. So it's going to be a fun night and just a great get together for the ladies and just, yeah, talk wild sheep and have a great night. Bye. The menu caught my attention. Pizza, double crusted pie, ice cream, and wine. Like, what more do you need? That and you get to talk wild sheep and hunting and conservation. That's going to be a blast. Yeah. It's at Crowsberry Farms yeah. uh, and a state winery. So you can appreciate that uh, if it's a winery, it's going to be pretty sweet. <laughs> and like I said, <laughs> uh, with your registration, I think there's two glasses of wine included with that. So basically, the night's free. Just come and have a great time. Um, buy your $70 registration and just enjoy yourself. I think it starts at six o'clock. Uh, you can't show up at the door. You got to buy your tickets ahead of time. Just mm -hmm. like other, our other stuff, you, you got to pre-register for it. So over to our website and, uh, we'd love to see you there. So yeah, be a great time for all the, to uh, get to go. Absolutely. Um, thin horns. Raffles. Raffles. We got raffles, raffles too. Yeah. So we've got, uh, three cool raffles on the go. We have a thin horn support raffle a doll sheep raffle it's with uh kusawa lake outfitters uh mac watson is the owner of that and uh we're raffling off uh doll sheep hunt in the yukon mm -hmm. territory where i'm at right now so this is a very cool hunt and all the funds from that raffle are going to go to wild sheep um for thin horn initiatives in northern british columbia so um you're you're supporting thin horns by buying tickets on that raffle and then we got another uh, three other raffles on the go. We got our Stone Glacier um, raffle from our conservation partner, Stone Glacier. We've got our Zeiss Optics raffle, and thanks to uh, Reliable uh, for supporting us on that one. And then we have a Corlanes rifle raffle. It's an Armar rifle, beautiful setup. As you know, the big bore sold out in three days. Oh, um, yeah, and, incredible! Uh, this Corlanes rifle again proceeds from that raffle are going to go to thin horn initiatives in northern bc so uh three great raffles to get involved in and we got some more on the horizon as you may or may not uh have guessed <laughs> so i'm um, totally stoked about that and it's what, it's what we do it is well and what we do is we put the money on the ground mm -hmm. and with that money we have our burn window for Josh Hamilton's been our lead on Northern Burns in, and he's been doing a ton of work um, with prescriptions, get everything in place. And we're in our burn window right now. So we're hoping that we'll be able to have one of those burns go off in May here. 
Um, all the work's been done, but there's a whole bunch of balances. You know, conditions have to be right. There's a very narrow window. And um, and even just some of the approvals are a little bit tenuous at times that uh, could uh, stymie things. So uh, fingers crossed that we'll get a burn off. And uh, boy, when that happens, we're, we're excited. We've been working for years to put these burns together. Josh has put a ton of work into it. And hopefully we can get things going. What area is that in? It's the Northeast, uh, specifically okay. there's seven polygons. And, um, you know, that, I think we need to have Josh on. And it, actually, if the burn goes off, we will have Josh on. <laughs> Absolutely. To talk specifically about those burns. Um, so there's that going on. Um, we've also got a bunch of these habitat studies that we're doing um, and health assessments. Um, we had uh, the, the Dunleavy herd, which is the southernmost uh, thin horn sheep herd in British Columbia. Um, that's a, a study that was done this past winter. Um, they just wrapped up from that a few uh, just over a month ago. And also we have the, um, what's the other one that they're doing up there? Um, yeah, the names escape the Russells. So there's a, right. a Russell as well. So, right, right. Um, you know, we put a bunch of money on the ground for Northern Dinhorns in the, in the last couple of years. And of course we're going to continue that and if we get these burns going this year. It's going to be really, really exciting. So. Oh, the burns do so much, right? It's more than wild sheep that benefits that. It's it's everything, right? It's moose, it's caribou, it's elk, it's birds, it's snakes. You you name it. If it's on the landscape, it shares it with sheep. It benefits, right? So that's where the membership dollars go and the fundraising dollars go to the tune of three hundred and twenty thousand dollars in twenty twenty one alone, right? Imagine what we can do this year if we keep selling these out. Like that's why it, it's so so important. To, it, it's it's almost sounds like a sales ad to push these but it's for the benefit of wildlife and habitat. And that's how you're going to make a difference. Well, we've made it a very clear part of our funding model, right? Like, a, you know, the work that we're doing is being supported by these raffles. And if our members didn't support us like this, we wouldn't do it. It's that simple. We just don't mm-hmm. um, have the ability to do it. This has been, a, you know, a big push. So, you know, hats off to our members and supporters. And of course the donors that make these raffles possible for supporting oh, yeah. this level to, like you said, yeah. $318,000. That's a yeah. big chunk of change. And I, I, I can't really do much on the ground from, from here where I'm at and get involved in these burns. But I know if I chuck a couple hundred bucks at a raffle, I, I feel like I've had a, a, a part in, in giving back. And that, that's so important, right? Yeah. Well said, Steve, for sure. No. With that, episode 73 with Mr. Kevin Hurley, Vice President of Conservation Wild Sheep Foundation. Enjoy the listen. If we told you tomorrow that elk, black bear, and bighorn sheep were next, would you speak up? Wildlife needs to be managed by science and not by emotion. And you don't have to be a hunter to take part in this movement. You just have to want sound management of our wildlife in BC. Go to wildsheepsociety.com act now to use your voice and demand that BC not use our wildlife as pawns in a game of social management. Act now. Or the things that you love could be next. Well, good morning, Kevin. Live from Whitehorse, Yukon. Good morning. So we're sitting in a room together. This is kind of new for Talk of Sheep. We usually do this remotely. So pretty cool that we can get in a room together and talk sheep and just, uh, yeah, finally getting together. It's nice. Yeah, you guys do a great job with this podcast. And so I've listened to many of them, but not all of them. I certainly would love to. But uh, yeah, glad to be here and glad to participate. Yeah, awesome. Well, and uh, we haven't done a lot of repeat guests, but I, th- I think you were one of our first guests. Maybe it was our second. I think Bill was the first one. You were our second guest on the show. And, um, you know, 
I could talk to you once a month and, and learn a ton of new stuff every time, but uh, appreciate you taking the time. So we're up here in Whitehorse. Let's talk about why we're here. What are we doing here today? Well, tonight we'll kick off uh, what we're calling the Thinhorn Sheep Summit number three. And in, in simplest terms, it's a gathering of stakeholders interested in the conservation of doll sheep and stone sheep across four northern jurisdictions of Alaska, Yukon Territory, Northern British Columbia, and Northwest Territories. So we've done three of, th three of these now. Uh, the first one was in 2014, and we held that at Richmond, right outside the Vancouver airport. We had about, that was in April of 2014. We had about 70 participants that showed up there, and it was uh, everything from agency folks, outfitters, interested resident and non-resident hunters, conservationists, our chapter and affiliate reps for the Wild Sheep Foundation. And so it was a good kickoff. And the really the genesis of that was, you know, in our now what's our 45-year history for the Wild Sheep Foundation, a lot of people think, well, the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep, that's how we were incorporated in 1977. We're still the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep. We do business as the Wild Sheep Foundation. But a lot of our focus was probably centric to the Western U.S. and Southern Canada and bighorn sheep and their issues and challenges. And so I've, I've been involved with the Wild Sheep Foundation 41 and a half years now <laughs> in some capacity. Wow. They funded my graduate work at the University of Wyoming way back when. And one of the opportunities I've had over the last 11 and a half years on staff is a chance to work more on Thinhorn conservation and management challenges. And so even though I've lived in Wyoming, Montana, and I live in Idaho, um, Thinhorn country has great um, appeal to me and fondness. I've been able to come up and hunt a few times. I brought my son up to the Yukon in, uh, five years ago and hunted. So anyhow, what we're trying to do is convene the interested stakeholders and talk about a spectrum of issues. You know, beginning at the basics, survey, inventory. What's our population estimates? Do we have trend information? Are there needs to do additional survey work, et cetera? So like any good uh, uh, trip, I think you need a map. And one of the things to me, a fundamental of that map is how many have you got and where are they? And so a lot of this country is so vast up here, it's hard to survey. We understand that. Um, it's dangerous. Um, doing a lot of flying. I've unfortunately had two small plane crashes doing wildlife surveys in Wyoming. But um, anyhow, survey and inventory. And then we want to talk about harvest. You know, what's the history um, and trend in harvest? You know, the old timers, and I am one of them now, but the old, old timers talk about, you know, sheep hunting in the 60s and 70s and 80s and how it compares to now. Some people think now is the glory days of sheep hunting. Others say, hmm, you should have been here 30 or 40 years ago. So a lot of uh, um, uncertainty, a lot of questions. And so we've got a variety of topics that we're going to cover over the next two days. We expect about 120 stakeholders, again, representing agency folks, the outfitting industry, our chapter and affiliate network, um, wild sheep conservation interests, um, students, uh, First Nations, 
uh, you know, indigenous folks represented here. So it'll be a diverse mix of topics over the next two days. So that's kind of a longer answer to a shorter question, but that's why we're here for Thinhorn Sheep Summit number three in Whitehorse, Yukon. Cool. So it's, uh, it's truly, uh, you know, uh, a, a broader group, uh, you know, and just not a bunch of hunters getting together. It, it's a very diverse group with biologists. And uh, so it's going to be heavier on the science end of things, would you say, or, or not necessarily that far? It's, it's, uh, and, and this is my first Thinhorn Summit, so I'm really excited to be part of it and see what it's like. Well, I've been a wildlife biologist 45 years, and I guess realizing that in Wildlife 101, the things they never taught you about were the human dimensions of wildlife management. Mm -hmm. You know, when I took 101 way back when, you learned about you know, when the deer breed and what do rabbits eat and that kind of thing. Now it's conflict resolution and interpersonal relationships and, and that sort of human dimensions stuff. And so there's a lot of interest in wild sheep conservation and management. There's a lot of conflict in wild sheep conservation and management. And so what we're trying to do, covering four jurisdictions in two days with about 120 folks, we're not going to take a deep dive into any one topic, but it is a chance for sharing of information between jurisdictions. You know, you'd think, well, hell, they're right next door to each other. So NWT and the Yukon and Alaska and Northern BC, they probably talk all the time. Well, Again, the country is vast, the distances are there, folks are busy, and so this is kind of a periodic touchstone. We did it in 2014 in Richmond. In 2017, we had Thinhorn Summit 2 in Anchorage, had about 110 folks there, different set of folks, but there are probably a third of the people that have been to the first two. And so our intent was to do this in three-year intervals so spring of 2020, we were scheduled to come to Whitehorse, and then we all know the big COVID uh, pandemic hit, and that botched a lot of people's lives and travel plans, and so we postponed it until we could meet in person, and it it's something we feel very strongly about. We talked about a virtual Thinhorn Sheep Summit, and we thought, no, we're going to hold off until we can get face-to-face, -face and and you know, probably one of the most beneficial things is meeting people who you've read about, heard about, but you don't know, you darn sure never sat and had a cup of coffee with them or drank a beer with them. But this is a good chance for um, diverse spectrum of stakeholders to get acquainted and swap information. Excellent. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about Thin Horns for a second. You talked about a roadmap and, and having a, a good idea on numbers and inventory. Um, do you feel that we have a pretty good grasp on it? I, I know there's some conjecture. You talk to some people and if you talk to the aunties, they'll tell you there's 6,000 stone sheep in BC. And if you talk to other people, they'll tell you there's 20,000. So do we have a handle on it? Do we really know our, our and what, what are population trends? Do, do you guys have a bit of a handle on that or where do we sit, Kevin? You know, uh, that's what we're hoping to hear from, especially the agency folks in these four jurisdictions. But, you know, take Alaska, for example, it's such a vast vast, huge area of doll sheep range in Alaska. Uh, I, I'm not aware that there's ever been a comprehensive survey flown of all doll sheep mountain ranges in Alaska. It's simply impossible and unaffordable in today's times. One of the things that I look at is in 1911, over 100 years ago, Charles Sheldon, an early naturalist, he put together a a rough map at the time, and of course that was way before airplanes and flying. But if you compare Sheldon's map of 
doll sheep and stone sheep distribution 110 years ago with the contemporary version now that's put together by the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and their wild sheep working group. The distribution is quite similar. Hmm. Now, what are absolute numbers? Probably vastly different in some places, but the distribution is largely mimics what Sheldon mapped 110 years ago. So I give the guy credit. He covered a lot of ground, talked to a lot of people, but you know, to make a map 110 years ago of doll sheep and stone sheep distribution, pretty incredible. And so as far as trends, you know, I guess I would characterize it this way. If you think about wild sheep in North America, Mexico, the Western U.S., Western Canada, and Alaska, the best estimates right now put numbers at about 200,000 total. And maybe half of those are doll sheep and stone sheep, and half would be Rocky Mountain California or Desert Bighorn. And so just round it off, and that's a total rounding error, but say there's 100,000 thinhorn sheep in these four jurisdictions. Um, if you look at doll sheep, Alaska felt for a long time that they had between 45 and 70,000. Now that's quite a wide interval mm -hmm. in that estimate, but that's just the reality of given the vastness of the country. What I can say, and we're going to hear about it more in the next two days from several Alaska Department of Fish and Game biologists who are going to be presenting either in person or remotely. Alaska's had a tough couple winters, maybe a 50 to 70 percent hit in some mountain ranges wow. and loss of doll sheep. Doesn't appear to be predation related. It appears to be weather related, deep snows. And so, you know, a, a current estimate if you figure 45 to 70 was their old estimate, and then you reduce that by 50 to 70%, you know, it's somewhere in that 25 to 40,000 range, perhaps still in Alaska. But that's a really, really rough total guesstimate on my part. If you come over into the Yukon Territory, 22,000 seems to be the, the number that I keep hearing repeated. And that's best, uh, based on the best available estimate that uh, wild sheep managers here in the territory can come up with. In Northwest Territories, 28,000 seems to be a ballpark, you know, plus or minus, realizing, again, vast country. And so, and then doll sheep in Northern British Columbia around Atlin, very limited, uh, maybe four to 600. And then you get into stone sheep. And so based on some taxonomic work, genetic work done and published a few years ago by a, what I think is a brilliant young guy from uh, University of Alberta, Dr. Zijin Sim. He and his colleagues, Bill Jackson Smithers, Troy Hagel, when he was the sheep and goat biologist here in the Yukon, and others worked with Sim, and they published a number of papers sort of refining and revising the taxonomy and distribution of stone sheep. And so I've heard the term used pure stone sheep versus fanning, which might be, you know, some kind of a cross between. But a year ago to try and get an estimate on that, and we realized that stone sheep range is, again, huge. And so we sent out an email survey to our three main conservation partners for wild sheep in the province. 
and that would have been government, Ministry of Forest, Land, and Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development. I realized they've gone through a uh, reorganization, so they have a different name, but basically the ministry. And then we also contacted the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Kyle, you're the president and CEO there. And Scott Ellis, the executive director for the Guide Outfitters Association of BC. And we posed some pretty simple questions. It was like, give us your best estimate of, you know, current numbers prior to lambing in the spring of 21. And then give us, you know, the top three to five type challenges, important management challenges, considerations. And so all three of the estimates came back on Stone Sheep, probably in that 12,000 to 14,000 range. And so if all three of those groups, the outfitters, the resident, um, you know, our chapter, our affiliate in the province and government, and obviously those folks all talk a lot, work together a lot. So it didn't surprise me that that estimate was somewhere in that 12 to 14,000 range for stone sheep. Um, we wish we knew mm -hmm. an exact number, but those data are hard to come by. Mm -hmm. So obviously we've heard the Alaska story. Um, so it's interesting that I find like we look at bighorns, for example, and we know that bighorns were <laughs> in severe decline. I think 25,000 was the low point, something like that. Is that the number we use for the, you know, very low numbers. And then due to the, hard work of organizations, particularly the Wild Sheep Foundation, they were, have been absolutely the leader on it. You know, those numbers are now 100,000 is the number that we're talking about today. So um, a lot of, I, I know with a lot of bighorns, certainly in Southern BC, there's, uh, you know, landscape changes. There's, uh, you know, they're human, right? The, a lot of the impacts, probably less so in these Northern climates um, and these Northern ranges, uh, but obviously there's, resource development, all this stuff going on as well there. Is that impacting uh, sheep populations much, or is it mostly climate change, um, predation, um, or, or the impact of industry and human development? Is that affecting them as well? Well, the easy answer would be yes to all of the above. And so what I mean by that is, you know, my horizon is only, you know, 15 to 20 years of coming up to Thinhorn country. I don't live here. I wish I did. But I don't. But in my relatively short stint, I've seen huge changes in Thinhorn Range, in northern British Columbia, in the Yukon, in Alaska. You know, one of the things that uh, we, we think happens a lot is mechanized access, travel management. You know, and I'm, uh, I'm talking everything from ATVs and UTVs, side-by-sides, jet boats, etc. Um, maybe what do they call those uh, jetpacks? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> as older as as I get older, I'm thinking as a sheep hunter, I, I should get a jetpack. But <laughs> I do think there's been some changes. You know, a lot of pipelines and power lines and energy corridors and and you know highway improvements. And so every one of those, you know, is it death by a thousand cuts? hard to say, but in accumulated impact, yeah, it's certainly different than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. What I'm really intrigued, tomorrow night, we're having a presentation by Dave Dixon, whose family has been 100 years in the outfitting business here in the Yukon. And I asked Dave and Tina to put together kind of a lighthearted talk about what was early day sheep hunting like? 
you know, uh, when guys were doing it in blue jeans and cowboy boots and a flannel shirt, how did they get it done? Well, I think those guys were tough. You know, people now think they're tough, but I think those old timers were really tough. And so, but yeah, impacts, I think you guys that live in Stone Sheep Range and Denhorn Range have a better appreciation, but we're going to hear about some of that in the next two days. Is What is the situation with access and travel management? What are the agencies and the stakeholders doing, if anything, to try and manage that, minimize the impact? And so, you know, a lot of times, cell phone coverage, you know, it's like how spoiled do people get? It's like, well, I want to be able to drive the Stewart Highway all the way, you know, and be in coverage the whole time. It's like, no, because then that would require cell towers on, you know, alternating mountain peaks. And so I do think there's some trade-offs and I'm not talking about going back to stone age type things, but I think managers and stakeholders need to really focus on what are those human impacts on thinhorn sheep and their habitats. So I guess, you know, and it's a bit controversial, uh, especially for our, our listening group that are hunters here, but you know, what do we, what's the impact we're having as hunters? Obviously, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the sheep tag numbers are. I haven't looked at them in the last year here, but uh, with COVID, we've seen an increase in hunters in general on the landscape. Um, and it'd be interesting to see, you know, what impacts we're seeing on the landscape, especially in British Columbia, we can just buy a tag over the counter, right? So obviously that's that's something that, uh, you know, everyone's afraid, oh no, it's going to go to a draw system, LEH or whatever the case may be. Um, but in reality, we're seeing more numbers in the landscape, which, you know, I'll be interesting to hear um, what the biologists are saying, if they're seeing an impact for wild sheep, for BC in particular, but uh, in all states, really, um, to be curious. You know, one of the, I guess one of the views that I've had, and it was 13, 14 years ago now, we put together a Westwide analysis of what were and are at the time the offtake rates, the harvest rates. Mm-hmm that as many jurisdictions as we could find data for. And so we presented all this in Utah in 2008 at the Northern Wild Sheep and Go Council meeting. Basically, if you think about for every hundred sheep you have on the mountain, the old rule of thumb was you should be able to take four rams and still have, you know, quality carry through time, sustained use at a 4% offtake rate and it's four percent of total population a lot of jurisdictions focus on you know what percentage of your class three and class four rams get harvested but the old rule of thumb was four per hundred and so rightly or wrongly that's been sort of the i won't say the sideboards but it's it's commonly cited as the offtake desired offtake harvest rates And so this Westwide analysis we did 14 years ago showed um, a range from 1% to 4%. And so, you know, some states and provinces and jurisdictions are very conservative at 1%. And others, like Wyoming, where I used to live and work and managed some of our bigger sheep herds there, we were trying for about a 3.5% offtake. I think right now, British Columbia is formulating their thinhorn sheep management plan. I know Bill Jux and Jeremy Ayotte and a few others are working on that. But I do believe 
in that two to three percent offtake rate. And so if you if you think about what impact are hunters having by removing two to three percent of a population, I think it's fairly low impact numbers wise. There's other things that humans are doing that are creating the issues, you know, where you've got disease issues and poor lamb survival, poor lamb recruitment. And, you know, it doesn't take too long for a population to get top heavy. And in that older age structure, if you have six or eight years of poor compromised lamb survival in Wyoming, the Whiskey Basin herd, uh, it's been over 30 years of lousy lamb crops. So imagine how inverted that age pyramid is in that population. Got a lot of older ewes that might produce a lamb, but the lambs don't survive. And so I think the hunting impact or removal is quite insignificant Mm -hmm. when you look at populations compared to some of the other impacts that human activities have on wild sheep numbers and their habitats. So, you know, I am a sheep hunter. I'm proud to be one. And if I could still do it like I used to, I would go again (laughs) every chance I could get. I'm trying to focus on my son and give him some opportunity uh, while I'm still able to go with him. But in terms of harvest and hunter impact, I think it's negligible. Now, there's certain facets of that. You know, are the, are the rams being killed at age six or seven when what you really want is a nine or 10-year-old ram to be harvested that's sort of lived his life and contributed all his genetic material to a population versus, you know, maybe taking out a young ram that's not quite there to the top of the heap. And so that's a different topic and issue in, I know, in many jurisdictions that have stone sheep and, and doll sheep questions. Yeah. Um, and I guess the one thing about hunter impacts is it's something that's highly managed, right? So we have real-time data. You're seeing the harvest rates. It's very tactile and it's immediate. Every year you're within a month of the season closing, you've got your data there. You know harvest trends and, and that sort of stuff. So whereas uh, disease, uh, you know, climate change, maybe a rough winter predation, you, you don't have the ability to monitor that. So you might not know your, where your inventory is, but you know what you're taking off the mountain anyway. That's a really good point, Kyle. And, and you know, again, I'll use the state of Wyoming where I worked for the Game and Fish Department for shy of 30 years. But we started horn plugging in 1977. And a lot of people don't know, but the Wild Sheep Foundation, we provide all the horn plugs for every jurisdiction, Um, states, provinces, territories, First Nations. Um, We're providing horn plugs in Central Europe. I'm sorry, Central Asia. (coughs) But yes, you do have really good data. There's compulsory inspection, mandatory registration, whatever you want to call it, that if a hunter takes a ram, he or she has to produce that at a local game and fish officer to a game and fish officer to get registered and get plugged in British Columbia. I know they use third party compulsory inspection contractors, <coughs> but they still have to provide that, submit that animal for aging and sampling. And so the harvest, we may know as much about harvest as we do any facet of wild sheep management. Hmm. Yeah. Good point. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, how, when we look across the landscape, there's a four jurisdictions with thin horn sheep. Um, obviously you mentioned concerns around these rough winters in the, in the North in Alaska, 
Is there any areas that you're particularly concerned about that's kind of on the radar that you're like, okay, we're, we're concerned here, keep an eye on it. And, and I guess on that same note, um, let, can we touch a little bit on disease? Is there any known cases where thin horn sheep have, have contracted? Obviously, they've contracted disease clearly, but mycoplasma ovin pneumonia is the big one. Um, and I know we're all scared to death of an event. Is there any, uh, I guess, any evidence that, that there has been a disease event and, and are we worried about it in in which and which jurisdictions too? So. Well, we wish we had perfect information on that exposure, but we don't. And so in a place like the Northwest Territories, maybe the harvest, and this was all pre-COVID, so COVID sort of scrambled a lot of people's activities and, and the numbers and the data. But let's just say in an average year that 200 rams were being harvested in the Northwest Territories. And at the first Thin Horn Summit eight years ago now, we heard that NWT enjoyed about a 97% success rate. And these are largely outfitted non-resident hunters. Um, the average age of harvested rams in the Northwest Territories was about 10, which is a really good age structure. And very little um, local harvest by indigenous folks or people in the NWT. And so how do we get samples from the field into somebody's hands? And so we're going to hear about that. Um, Dr. Nema Jutha is now the chief veterinary officer for the Northwest Territories. She is one of Helen, Dr. Helen Schwanch's protégés. And so Dr. Kylie Thacker is now the wildlife vet in BC and Dr. Nema Jutha is in NWT. And so we're trying to work with the Association of Mackenzie Mountain Outfitters work with the government, uh, environment, and natural resources in NWT and try and get field kits to hunters to get samples. Well, some of the uh, media that you put a like a nose swab and you put it in a test tube, you have to try to freeze that. Well, easier said than done unless you get caught in an early fall storm, but it's difficult to get really good samples in the field and preserve them and then send them to a diagnostic lab, for example, like Abbotsford, right. the animal health center there in Abbotsford. Well, they took a hit because of the flooding. And so Abbotsford lab's been pretty well compromised for the last four or five months. Mm -hmm. and they're getting their doors back open gladly, but you've got to collect those samples, get them in from the field get them into say an agency central gathering point and then most agencies will outsource that to a specialized lab like Abbotsford or sometimes the Western Animal Disease and Diagnostic Lab in Pullman, Washington. So depending on um, how easy it is to get sample kits to hunters, you know, in the Yukon they've done a good job. I remember going to the 10 Burns Road headquarters here in Whitehorse when my son had his license five years ago and they had what, what I would call like a, a Halloween basket. You know, there was a box of them on the counter. It's like, Hey, take one, take two, you know, make sure. And the Yukon wild sheep foundation chapter has worked very hard with government here to try and get those test kits, the sampling kits to hunters in the event they would harvest one. But Quality control, sample preservation, sample maintenance is always tricky unless you can immediately 
you know, get that thing cooled and ideally frozen and shipped and then analyzed somewhere else. So it's, it's a continual challenge to try and get good data on disease from harvested rams. Now, every time that an, a, a wild sheep is going to be caught, either with a dart gun or a, a net gun from a helicopter or a drive net or a drop net, however they're handled, I think the wildlife vets and the wildlife managers and the wild sheep conservation folks realize how important it is to get every sample you can off that individual animal because it's hard to get your hands on them. It's expensive. You don't want to do it any more than you have to. So you better get a good batch of samples, whether it's fecal, pharyngeal, nasal, tonsillar, blood, you name it. They get a pretty good workup. And then a lot of the jurisdictions store that store those samples, you know, for genetics work. So I referenced Sim's work on stone sheep five, six, seven years ago. He was able to access a lot of archived DNA samples to do his analysis. So disease is a huge concern in the Western U.S. and Southern Canada with bighorn. What we're finding so far is things are still looking pretty good for doll sheep and stone sheep, to my knowledge, and we'll, we expect to hear from the vets over the next two days, no positives have been found in the Yukon for Mycoplasma ovidemoniae or MOVI, M-O-V-I is the acronym. No positives in the Yukon, none yet in NWT, none yet in stone sheep in Northern British Columbia. Alaska has a different situation where over the last probably four years, there have been uh, reports of MOV being found in harvested doll sheep in Alaska, as well as captured animals for study, for research. And then, you know, if they've come across a dead animal somehow. And so we're going to hear a lot from Alaska Department of Fish and Game and their wildlife vet about the latest findings in Alaska. But MOV and respiratory bacteria can really compromise wild sheep. I remember our Wyoming Game and Fish veterinarian, wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Tom Thorne, back in the 80s, he wrote a story for our monthly magazine. And the title of his article, I'll never forget it, it was Born, comma, Looking for a Place to Die. <laughs> and the point Tom was making, and I've believed it for 45 years now, is that these are really tough animals. Look where they live and how they can survive. But from a respiratory standpoint, if you look at them sideways, they're pretty wimpy. And so I do think that's one of the biggest challenges in wild sheep conservation is trying to keep healthy sheep on healthy mountains. And that's not always easy to do, as we'll hear in the next couple of days. Maybe we can talk some more about that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I guess for our listeners is, um, it's, uh, with bighorns, they tend to be, um, quite segregated. They're not a contiguous group as much, but, uh, I, I think that one of the concerns with stone sheep from what I've heard from you, Kevin, is that that's a very interconnected group. You know, if you look at Northern BC and, and, you know, Movi would spread like the plague, it would be devastating. So yeah. Okay. You maybe get the bull river herd in the Kootenays end up with Moby, 
it's going to affect that herd, but it's not going to affect, you know, the subsequent populations in and around the area necessarily. So, but in Thinhorn Range, it's, that's a different animal. I think that's why it's so scary for biologists and such, right? Absolutely. And the, the analogy I use, and I've, I've been involved with a lot of prescribed burning in my 45 years, but, you know, if you have fuel breaks, you have a better chance of stopping a fire instead of having it just run with the wind behind it from way over here to way over there. And so that disjointed distribution of bighorn that you just talked about, there are periodic breaks in between bighorn subpopulations. Conversely, here, Alaska, NWT, the Yukon, northern BC, it's a lot of con connected habitat. And so I think that's a fair analogy is if a fire started and fire being this respiratory pneumonia, it could run and there's no fuel breaks. There's no stopping it until it goes all the way through to the end of the fuel. And mm -hmm. so that's, frankly, it scares the hell out of me um, if something ever got started. And so, you know, you always want to be preventive and proactive in your, in your management. It's like, cause once it happens, you're not going to undo it. Mm -hmm. You can't fix it. And so we don't ever want respiratory pneumonia to get a toehold here in Thinhorn range and then spread. And quite honestly, we look at the Yukon territory, as sort of a hub in the middle of a wheel with spokes and the connectivity between the Yukon and Alaska is clear. Alaska, I mean, Yukon to British Columbia is clear. Yukon to Northwest Territories is clear. And so that's why with some of the steps that have been taken over the last three years here in the Yukon Territory have been pretty significant. And it's, for lack of a better descriptor, it's called the Yukon Control Order. And we're going to hear some presentations about that. But in a nutshell, the government of Yukon embarked in 2019 on an effort to identify and test all the domestic sheep and domestic goats in the territory to find out if they carried mycoplasma ovinemonia or MOV. And they've had um, a lot of angst on the part of producers and this was not intended to try and put anyone out of business. But when we first started talking about this years ago, it was like, well, how many domestic sheep and goats are there in the Yukon territory? And nobody knew. Hmm. And so the first thing, kind of like that roadmap analogy again, the first thing they had to do was figure out well, how many farms and producers are there in the territory. And they actually found quite a few more than they thought they had or knew about. And so they were able to provide the funding for a veterinarian to go to, say, it's Steve's property somewhere in the Yukon Territory. They would go sample his animals and then provide the results to him. It stayed confidential, but they were able to survey and sample all the domestic sheep and goats that could be identified. And so everything from local neighbors to the conservation officer service and, and the agency and the advocate folks would help identify where these places were. And then in the event a producer or a, you know, flock owner had positive animals for MOV, they either had to be slaughtered or removed from the Yukon territory. And there were compensation payments made. And I realize money doesn't solve everything, but 
it was an investment in wild sheep health on a scale that I've never known of before. And so we give great thanks and credit to the animal health unit, Dr. Mary Vanderkop, um, who's the chief veterinary officer here in the Yukon Territory. She and her team have done a great job in identifying where the vectors are. And then, you know, grudgingly, some people have gotten rid of their domestic sheep or goats. They've been compensated for them. I realize that doesn't make up for it. But um, the Yukon has taken, in, in our view, huge strides on this issue. And we would hope that other jurisdictions would look at it the same. They're, they're doing different things in Alaska. NWT, it's not really an issue. Northern BC, you know, you guys have that uh, government action regulation that came out a few years ago that basically talked about where domestic sheep and goats uh, could occur in, on crown land in the northern province. And so if one thing's happened over the last eight to 10 years, we think we've elevated the profile of thinhorn sheep or tried to help elevate that. They've always been important, but we're, we're trying to share information and bring some resources and knowledge and then share experiences and what, what we've learned in these different provinces and territories and states. So, so I, can, can I throw in something here? I, I want to know what you feel like, of course, objectively, what some of the main stumbling blocks to get some of these other jurisdictions on board with uh, the, the Movi prevention are. Well, let's, let's talk about British Columbia for a minute or two. You know, you guys live there in the province, you know, as way better than I ever will, the politics of British Columbia. And so there's been a longstanding effort in the province with uh, what's called the Sheep Separation Program. And so Jeremy Ayotte's been the long-term contract lead for the Sheep Separation Program. It's largely been focused in the southern part of the province on Bighorn Range, but certainly active and focused on Thinhorns up north as well. And so, you know, nobody likes being told what they can and can't do by government or anybody. And so um, I think the biggest impediment, Steve, is that some people just don't buy the science, you know, and I don't want to get into a big hairy debate about COVID, but it's like, man, I'm, I've been double vaccinated and double boosted because I'm of that age group. But, you know, to me, the science is clear that when you put these uh, animals together that can transfer pathogens back and forth, um, bad things typically happen to wild sheep. Mm -hmm. And so impediments, you know, a lot of it may be philosophical. Some of it may be monetary. Some may be just, you know, that strong backbone. And, you know, you're not going to tell me what I can and can't do. You know, I try to live off the land as much as I can. And I produce my own vegetables and I harvest my own game. And I, I raise my own beef, chicken, pork, whatever, goats, goats for milk, cheese, things like that. So there are earnest efforts that people are making, but I don't, I just don't think a lot of people are aware of the connection of the issue that when the two get together, the outcome is usually negative for wild sheep. Mm -hmm. And so then it gets into the whole political realm of, you know, not he said, she said, but it's really difficult to convince somebody that 
won't even open up and acknowledge that there's some scientific basis for this concern. And, you know, the analogy I use is think about the Western U.S. when that country was opened up by early settlers. You know, inadvertently, they brought smallpox, cholera, chickenpox, you know, some European-type diseases that Native Americans had never had any exposure to. So they had no resistance to it. And so to me, it's analogous to that situation where doll sheep and stone sheep in Thinhorn Range haven't had contact with domestic sheep and goats for the most part. It has happened in some places, but there's been no development of resistance. If you look at old world wild sheep in China, Mongolia, Russia, places like that, where they've probably co-pastured their livestock for a thousand years or 2000 years, maybe there's some differential resistance, but here in the new world wild sheep, I don't think they've had that exposure and they haven't had time. And so if you look around the West, a lot of the impacts have been bighorn sheep die-offs. And at first, you know, with our diagnostic techniques that are available now, we can detect things that we didn't know about 20 years ago, much less 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I remember in Wyoming reading about um, early accounts of thousands of wild sheep, thousands of bighorn sheep dead from what was known as the scab. Well, scabies is, uh, or seroptes, it's a mite that works in the ear canals of bighorns. And so British Columbia has got issues down in the Similkameen and right along the border with Washington State with scabies, but that's an outwardly visible sign. And so if, if the report was thousands of bighorns died from the scab, well, what we know now, they probably had respiratory pneumonia that you couldn't detect 100 years ago, mm-hmm. but outwardly you could look at a dead bighorn and go, oh, look at the ears on that thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're learning every year, every day. And so I do think there are a lot of impediments, but a lot of it is, and it's not that folks are malicious or intentional. It's inadvertent, but it happens. And so I think the best thing to do is try and educate folks about the risk. And so, for example, can I talk about the film? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this film transmission that Wild Sheep Society BC has put together. We're going to not preview it, but we're going to show it tomorrow night. It's been shown a number of places. I've, I've seen it. It's an excellent film that talks about this issue and the interpersonal relationships. You know, you've got young families trying to raise their kids on a small piece of property and have their own chickens and goats and, you know, 4-H steers or whatever. And so, it's a good educational tool to make people aware who may think, you know, some are going to go, nah, I don't buy it. Others go, wow, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And so it's not propaganda. I think it's pretty soft sold message, but it's a clear message that contact between domestic sheep and goats and wild sheep usually ends up wrong for wild sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent points. Um, so, Let's let's segue a bit now, Kevin, off that and kind of, you know, this is a good touch point. It's the roadmap. And of course, the roadmap is the end game where you're heading. So obviously, increased wild sheep populations is probably one of those goals. Um, 
is there going to be any outcomes from this where we say, okay, there's some things that we can do here? And, uh, you know, are we looking at policies or procedures or changes to the way we manage wild sheep across these four jurisdictions to get those numbers of thinhorn sheep up? Well, I think so. And, you know, so in bighorn range, transplants have been one of the major tools to try and reestablish populations in historic and still suitable habitat. Very few transplants have occurred in thinhorn range. In fact, uh, I started a, an effort in 1996 that finally got finished 19 years later with Clay Brewer's help in the Waffle Wild Sheep Working Group. We put together a database and some maps of every translocation of wild sheep we could ever document. And we poured, and our colleagues poured through dusty file cabinets to get this information. But we we'll probably missed some. But in doll sheep, no transplants that we could ever document. Mm -hmm. Stone sheep, I think there were seven transplants along the peace arm of the Williston that resulted in about 28 or 29 stone sheep being moved, I think, before the dam went in. And so, really, translocation is not a big part of doll sheep or stone sheep management. Bighorns, yeah, it, it has been. There's been over probably close to 23,000 bighorns trapped and moved in probably close to 1,600 different transplants. Man, that's a lot. Over the last 100 years. The first one we could document was in 1922, 100 years ago, wow. from Banff, with 20 sheep coming out of Banff, 12 went to Montana, 8 went to South Dakota. So 100-year history of moving sheep, very little movement of thin horns. Just don't need it. But the connectivity of the habitat, I do think, lends itself to, you know, look, look at Alaska. Alaska's had difficult winters before. And, you know, we hate to think of 50 to 70% loss in some populations of doll sheep in the, in the great state of Alaska. But if the habitat is there, presumably they will come back. With climates changing, which is a whole nother topic that we're going to try and touch on, we're not going to solve in the next two days, but we're going to talk about what are folks seeing? You know, are there rain on snow events, freeze thaw cycles where you get a crust formed and sheep can't paw through that thick crust to get at the grass beneath. And so, you know, ascending brush lines as temperatures warm and the shrub cover on the hillsides goes up. Well, the mountain's not getting any taller. So what that's doing is shrinking and eroding the available habitat. And so are there some proactive management steps that can come out of that? You know, maybe think about a lawnmower on a contour, elevational contour. It's like, yeah, well, we're losing, you know, 10 meters a year elevationally. So maybe we need to treat 20 meters a year of that brush line on that elevation contour. It's kind of a weird concept, but you know, what do you do with those sorts of things? So yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of information exchange the next two days, a lot of contacts made, follow-ups certainly are going to occur, sharing of information between the managers, the wildlife veterinarians, the advocates, the conservation stakeholders. And so, you know, are we going to, uh, I won't even say, do thinhorn sheep need fixed? No, no, they don't need fixed. Their habitat needs to be protected and, you know, 
if we can provide the habitat, I'm still a believer in the field of dreams baseball analogy. You know, if you build it, they will come. If you have the habitat, they will come back. And so predator management is certainly an issue. Access and travel management is an issue. This whole impact of changing climates, what does that mean? You know, rain on snow and then freeze-thaw type cycles. I don't know how to mitigate that. Mm -hmm. I'm not smart enough. There's thousands of scientists around the world working on climate change. But what do you do to mitigate that? I don't know. But it's important to document what's going on and then creatively try and come up with some strategies to help improve or, or hold on to that habitat. So I'm really looking forward to the next two days just for what I'm going to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me as well. So let's just touch a little bit on the translocation. So you talked about, we do it in bighorns and Mexico, well, the lower 48, obviously there's some amazing uh, populations that have returned. Again, we went from 25,000 to 100,000 bighorns and a lot of that is in the backs and translocation. But we see in Mexico where they're actually growing sheep. They're panning them, they're growing them. It's a bit different in in what we're used to. And um, so I'm going to ask you, there's two two people have mentioned this. I'm not going to, I'll mention one of their names because he's pretty vocal about it or open about it. But a guide out for a friend of ours in BC said to me, look at what they're doing in Mexico. Look at how successful they are. Why don't we do that for stone sheep? There's a lot of great habitat out there. It has the carrying capacity and there's no sheep there. So why aren't we growing stone sheep? And isn't that something that we could do? So that was his question for BC. And then I've heard Kevin Hurley, or sorry, uh, Kevin Kehoe of Alaska. Um, Kevin has said, you know, uh, you guys have this true population of stone sheep in BC. If you had a disease event, it could be catastrophic. You could lose your stone sheep population. Why don't we diversify? We'll buy stone sheep off you. You ship them to Alaska and we'll transplant them. It's great for uh, the outfitting business. It's great for populations. Now we've got two populations. We've diversified. So if stone sheep in BC are dwindling or there's a die-off, sheep are doing well in Alaska. So outside the box, controversial, obviously, um, what are your thoughts on, on those those scenarios that have been floated over the years? Wow, let me let me talk to the Mexico situation, and I wish you know, wish I knew half or a fraction of what Clay Brewer, on our staff, just retired after a career with Texas Parks and Wildlife and several years on our staff. But Clay helped really was the energy behind getting Desert Bighorn reestablished in West Texas, and through his career, Clay's done a lot of work in Mexico. Down there, if you think about the politics and the government situation in Mexico, the landowners, private landowners, and the ejidos, the local communities, own that wildlife and manage that wildlife. And so it's a different model than, say, here in uh, northern BC, southern Yukon with crown land, or in Alaska, which is a lot of federally managed lands, Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service state of Alaska lands. And so there's a, uh, a different um, landscape, a different land ownership pattern in Mexico. One of the things that people have done is, ra- as you said, raising desert bighorn in captive behind high fence. And that has been beneficial. There are at least uh, a couple states that currently have captive breeding facilities um, New Mexico has what's called the Red Rocks captive breeding facility in southwestern New Mexico where they have, uh, I think, about 2,200 acres enclosed 
and they have a nursery herd of desert bighorn there. And Texas used to have some captive breeding facilities at their Sierra Diablo, but those are kind of mothballed in and closed down now. And so some people, philosophically, that'd be a big pill to swallow. It's mm-hmm. like, well, these are wild animals, so why are we putting them behind fence? You know, does that diminish their attributes as a wild animal? Some would say yes, some would say no. I do think there are efforts going on, like in Utah. The state of Utah has worked for a number of years with our Utah Wild Sheep Foundation chapter to try and come up with a nursery herd for desert bighorn so that they know where their source stock is coming from when they need transplant animals. One of the big question marks is if you're bringing sheep in from one state to another state, you better know the pathogen profile of that source population as well as your destination population because are you going to be inadvertently bringing in some bad bugs, some respiratory bacteria or some something else that the source population has that the recipient population, you really don't want to do that. <coughs> and so to me, there's a lot of consideration, but K2's idea, you know, well, let's just have stone sheep and we'll turn them loose in Alaska. Well, some people would argue that on a genetic standpoint. You know, it's like, well, Fannin sheep that occur in the southern Yukon are some kind of a hybrid cross between stone sheep and doll sheep. And a lot of it has to do with the ice age and the refugia and, and where these populations survived the ice ages and then grew back. And so that was a lot of Sims work. Northern BC had some refugia protected areas that didn't get glaciated. And that's where stone sheep survived and then grew back. And so I've, I've not heard that suggestion of you know, moving stone sheep to Alaska because there's open habitat. I think there's a lot of habitat in British Columbia that could stand as I view it. And I don't live in Northern BC, so I shouldn't even offer my opinion, but Habitats need to be protected, and whether that's from human activity, and I'm not talking wilderness for everything, but there's got to be consideration that these are sensitive animals, sensitive to disturbance, and their habitats should be protected, conserved, and managed. And if part of that is restriction on human access, then so be it, you know. The older I get, the harder it is for me to go backpacking, but I would still go that way if I had to. Mm -hmm. And so I just hope that people think about the habitat needs of these animals that have been here since the last ice ages and how they've responded and adapted and evolved to fit the habitats that they're in. I'm a firm believer in natural selection. And so to me, I'm not saying it wouldn't work Mm -hmm. to take stone sheep from northern BC and drop them off in Alaska somewhere, they'd probably do okay. But again, I think the critters that evolved in the habitat are best suited to be in that habitat. You know, the assumption I always have is animals are in the best habitat they can find, the best they can select for. And we may think we have a better mousetrap and a better way to, better place to put them, but I think they can tell us where they prefer to be 
and we should do what we can to provide that habitat and maintain the integrity of that habitat through time. Well said. Yeah, very, very good points. So um, you'd be respectful of your time here, Kevin. Uh, I know you got a, a bunch, I think you have another podcast today and, and work to do as a host. But uh, what? Uh, any last thoughts on on Thinhorn Sheep before we convene here? Anything else you want to bring up that we haven't touched on today? Well, I guess you know there's a lot of people that are interested in in Thinhorn Sheep, and you know if you think about the numbers, and again, their approximations. But if there were 200,000 wild sheep in North America, there was a time that Alaska had a quarter of all the wild sheep, 50,000, um, and maybe half the doll sheep and stone sheep on the planet. Not that Alaska has stone sheep, but they've got half the thin horns on the planet. And so I think there's a growing reality that these are animals that need not kid gloves, look where they live. They're tough as hell to survive where they do. But I do think they could use a little more consideration from humans, mm-hmm. you know, on let's, uh, let's not expose them to domestic sheep and goats and potential respiratory pathogen transmission and subsequent disease. Because what happens on that is once a you gets infected, maybe she produces a lamb, the lamb doesn't survive. There are some places that are chronic carrier use that keep shedding bacteria and they spread it around their populations. And so I guess the bottom line hope is that these thin horn sheep summits, one, two, and three spaced eight years apart now, maybe we have another one in three to five years. But I, I do think this is continuing to keep a spotlight on thin horn sheep management and how they're world is changing and things that we as humans need to do to try and find a space for them to stay, you know, so that in a hundred years from now, the thin horn sheep distribution map looks like Charles Sheldon's 1911 map looks like the 2012 map that the WAFWA Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Wild Sheep Working Group put together. I'd love it if there was thin horn sheep a hundred years from now, right in the same place as they are. Mm-hmm. And I hope to be around to see that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, uh, Kevin, I want to thank you for for your leadership as uh, Vice President of Conservation for the Foundation. I know that Dinhorn are near and dear to your heart. And I know that you're working day in and day out to look after the resource. So I feel like they're in good hands. And I just appreciate all you do, sir. So thank you. Thank you, guys. And I appreciate your focus on wild sheep in the province and beyond.